How shall a young man cleanse his way? By taking heed thereto according to thy word. Thy word have I hid in my heart that I might not sin against thee. Thy word is a lamp unto my feet and a light unto my path. Jesus prayed to the Father, sanctify them in truth. Thy word is truth. The flower fades and the grass withers, but the word of our God shall stand forever. Before we begin our study this evening, we need to make sure we're in fellowship, so we'll have a few moments of silent prayer to give you the opportunity to use 1 John 1.9 if necessary, and then I will open in prayer. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for this opportunity to gather together this evening to study your word. We thank you for the opportunity to fellowship around the truth, for it is the truth that will set us free. Father, as we continue our study, we pray that you would help us to understand these things that uh, we study and understand their significance, help them shape the way we think about reality around us. We pray these things now in Christ's name. Amen. Open your Bibles with me to Genesis chapter 2. Genesis chapter 2, verse 4. And we begin the next section in Genesis this evening. Now let me remind you that I'm trying something new in our study of Genesis. That is, I'm, I'm dividing our studies into three basic topics, you might say, or three categories. We're going to have A-level tapes. Those A-level tapes are summary tapes. For example, if you remember, the first lesson was a summary of the whole book. Then we had a, a second summary tape that focused just on Genesis 1, 1 to 2, 3. That is the first section in the book. So we covered that to give an overview. Then we have B-level tapes. B-level tapes are the exegesis tapes. For example, Lessons 4 through about um, 13 were exegetical tapes. That means that we took our time to go through verse by verse, clause by clause, word by word, the first chapter of Genesis. And then we have C-level tapes. And the C-level tapes are topic tapes. So far we've had two different topic studies. The first one was that the first C-level tape had to do with the authorship of Genesis. Who wrote Genesis? And there we saw that it was Moses, but I provided a lot of information dealing with liberal theories on the authorship of Genesis, all of which incidentally flow out of an evolutionary view of man, an evolutionary view of religion. And then the last three Wednesday nights, we looked at specifically at problems in the creation-evolution debate and provided you with information from more of a scientific framework as well as looking at the internal logic of the evolutionary position, why it doesn't hold water and is internally uh, inconsistent, and therefore is a position that, if, that doesn't fit the requirements of science. So tonight we come to the next section. Now, when we did the original overview of Genesis, I said that there were ten Toledot sections in Genesis. Now, the word that I just used is a Hebrew word that is sometimes translated history, sometimes translated generations. It looks like this. T-O-L-E-D-O-T. And this is concept of generation or history and 
I believe that this signifies various scrolls, various uh, written records that had been passed down from generation to generation. And they were records that had been kept throughout the centuries prior to the time that Moses actually wrote uh, the Pentateuch. So that when Moses sat down to pen Genesis... He had before him various records that had been handed down from Adam himself down through Noah, Abraham, uh, Isaac, and Jacob, and he referred to those. And he used these this Toledot uh, section to indicate the major divisions in the the major divisions in this book, so that we come to our first mention of Toledot in Genesis 2 verse 4. This is the account. That's a New American Standard. Uses the phrase, this is the account of the heavens and the earth. Actually, it's this is the history of the heavens and the earth. These Toledot sections stand as sort of a subtext, or let's say a division, topical sentence within a division. They stand at the beginning of the division. So the answer to this question with this first Toledot is to answer the question, well, what happened What happened to this perfect environment God created in Genesis 1? Remember, to understand Genesis and fully get the impact of Genesis, you have to put yourself in the place of a Jew on the plains of Moab in about 1405-1406 B.C. You are the generation that's going to go into the land and and conquer the land. It was your parents who were the disobedient generation who rebelled against Moses and constantly threw temper tantrums out in the desert as they got bored with the manna and bored with the food that God provided. And God disciplined that nation because they failed, or that generation because they failed to trust Him when they had the opportunity when they came to Kadesh Barnea. And they sent the twelve spies into the land. It was ten of the spies that came back saying, Oh, there's too many people in the land. There's giants in the land. They have walled cities. We can't do it. Caleb and Joshua said, No, we can do it because God didn't send us in there to see if we could do it. He sent us in there so that we could make a plan to do it because God's going to give us the victory. The battle is always the Lord's. So that generation failed and we're not allowed to go into the land. So you have a new generation, their children. That's who's sitting on the plains of Moab. And they are asking the question, Who are we and why should God give us this land? And Genesis answers that question. Genesis is designed to give identity to the nation Israel in terms of their historical roots. It was to do for Israel much that the book uh, Roots by Alex Haley did for uh, many in the black community in the uh, in, back in the 70s. It was to give them a sense of identity, a sense of purpose, a sense of why God called them out in a unique way. Remember, there are 50 chapters in Genesis, and the, it's only the first 11 chapters that deal with the world as a whole, civilization as a whole. It's from Genesis chapter 12 through chapter 50 that deal with the beginnings of the nation of Israel with their foundation in Abraham and through his son Isaac, Jacob, and then down through uh, Joseph and Joseph's brothers who made up the 12 tribes of Israel. So we have to put ourselves in that place and we're asking the question, why are we here and why is this God that you're telling us about so important? 
Now Moses begins to answer that first question in chapter 1. In chapter 1, he uses uniquely uses the word Elohim to refer to God. He doesn't use the word Yahweh, which is the technical term, the name of God, that, that is associated with his covenant with Israel. Elohim was just a generic term used in the Semitic languages for God. In, in uh, Arabic, you have the word Al, which is related to Allah, but Allah is not the same as same individual as Elohim. The God of Islam is not the same as the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. But there is an etymological similarity and relationship between the the word Al and the word El in the Old Testament, which is the generic term for God. So in this section, or in the beginning of Genesis, Moses is going to answer the question, why this God? And Genesis 1 sets the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob apart from all the other gods that are worshipped by the Canaanites, that are worshipped by the Egyptians, the Babylonians, the Sumerians, all of these various civilizations, because they worship gods who are personifications of the forces of nature. They worship a moon god, a sun god. They worship the uh, the gods of, of nature, of the storm, of wind and rain. But it is the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob who creates nature. It is the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob who created the forces of nature, the planets, the stars, uh, the sun, the moon. All of this is a result of the power of Israel's God. Israel's God is radically different from all of the other gods. Israel's God created everything ex nihilo out of nothing. And so you have the first section that summarizes God's creative activity in those seven days in that first creation week. And we come to the conclusion at the first three verses of chapter 2. Thus the heavens and the earth were completed and all of their hosts. By the seventh day God completed his work which he had done and he rested on the seventh day from all his work which he has done. Then God blessed the seventh day and sanctified it because in it he rested from all his work which God had created and made. That ends the section. It is a, It has an internal integrity as a piece of literature. And then there is a shift that begins in verse 4. This is the account of the heavens and the earth when they were created. Literally, this should be read, this is the history of the heavens and the earth. What Moses is saying is, now I'm going to tell you what happened to the heavens and the earth that God created. And so now he is going to answer the question, well, if God created everything and it was all created perfect and everything was good... How in the world did we get in this mess? The Israelites sitting out on the plains of Moab were familiar with the fact that their ancestors for some 400 years had been slaves in Egypt. They had engaged in military conflict on numerous occasions coming out of Egypt. They had fought with the Egyptians. They had fought with the Amalekites. Later they had fought with the Moabites and other groups. They knew how horrible and wicked the world was. And they're saying, well, if God created everything perfect... How did it get in this mess? So one of the major themes of Genesis, of this next section has to do with how the world became messed up. The world that was blessed by God, and that word blessing is used three times in Genesis chapter 1, 
how it becomes a place of cursing, and the word curse is used three times in Genesis 2 through 4. So there is a definite shift, and this is a major theme in the book of Genesis of blessing and cursing, that God made everything perfect and he blessed his creation, and yet because of human volition and the wrong use of volition in Genesis chapter 2, the human race and all of creation became cursed. This is the major theme of these three chapters. Now when we look at this, we look at Genesis 2-4, you see this is the account, this is the history of the heavens and the earth. Now I want you to just turn over a couple of pages in your Bible to Genesis chapter 5, verse 1. Genesis 5 says, this is the book of the generations of Adam. Now notice the translator isn't even consistent in the New American Standard between those two verses. It's the same verbiage in both. This is the toledot of the heavens and the earth when they were created in 2.4. This is the toledot of Adam in the day when God created man uh, in Genesis 5. So starting with Genesis 5, we're going to get the history of what happened to Adam's descendants. But in Genesis 2.4, we begin to get the history of what happened to the as it were, the descendants of this perfect heaven, heavens and earth. So the section runs from Genesis 2-4 down through Genesis 4-26. And so tonight what we're doing, we're back to an A-level uh, message where we're going to summarize Genesis 2 through 4. Now one of the reasons I'm doing this is just an eye to our prep school teachers, is if we continue at the rate we're going through Genesis, we will probably have 250 or 300 hours in Genesis. And let's say you're a prep school teacher, and you are, if you're a pastor out somewhere, and you're, you want to understand the basic flow of Genesis so that you can teach it, you're not going to have time if you teach Genesis in a, in a single quarter or in two quarters in Sunday school to listen to 300 hours of tapes. But we'll break this down and have a summary at each of these Toledot sections. So we'll end up having the first summary, which covered the whole book. And then we will have about ten summaries going through the book for each Toledot section. So you can sit down at the end and just pull out all of these A-level tapes, and you can get a complete summary of Genesis in those 11 or 12 tapes. And as we go through, I'm going to point out the major doctrines that need to be covered or that are, are indicated in, in the text and which we will come back in our study and deal with in more detail. But this gives a someone who is teaching an opportunity to get a good summary of the key doctrines in a section, and then they can use that later on to uh, develop and to outline their own course of study. Now, the theme of cursing, as I've stated, is the primary theme of Genesis 2 through 4, and it is the result of the volition that that uh, God gives man, the capacity and responsibility to serve him, and God gives man volition, and man fails to use that volition to fulfill the mandate to serve him, and he disobeys him by eating of the fruit of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. In chapter 1, we see that it is the Word of God that creates. 
all things come into existence by the word of God. We read again and again and again, and God said. So the word of God brings things into existence in chapter 1. In chapter 2, the word of God commands and gives moral mandates to mankind. And then in chapter 3 and chapter 4, it is the voice of God that curses man at the end of chapter 3, and then in chapter 4 in relationship to Cain, and as a result of his murder of his brother. So chapter 2 and 3 and 4 all fit together, but chapter 2 and 3 form a stylistic whole. They are They fit together. As you analyze it as literature in terms of its flow and its structure, chapters 2 and 3 fit together, and then chapter 4 fits together in another way. So I'm going to put these up here on the overhead, and then we'll use this as an outline to go through the section. Let's just have an overview of this to begin with. First of all, we'll see that chapters 2 and 3 fit together in a chiasm. A chiasm. Now, a chiasm is a literary device that was used to order to- topics. And the Greek letter key used to be pronounced chi. That's why it's pronounced chiasm. The Greek letter key is like our X. And what you have is you'll have a number of statements. Let's say A, B, C, and then you come back to B, and then B prime, and then A prime. And the focus is just like uh, a, an area of light in a portrait. The area of focus that your your mind is drawn to is whatever is in that center position, that C position. And that is the center of the discussion. And everything else either builds to that point or leads from that point. But it is that center position that is the focal point of the of the narrative. Then you have another, in chapter 4 we have a sort of a parallel, uh, a, a synonymous parallelism in the structure. We'll have A, B, and then C, and then we'll have another A prime, B prime, and C prime. It's not in a form of a chiasm. They come back out, and in each of these, and then there's a, excuse me, and then there's a, a D, and it is that D section that is the center of the narrative in chapter 4. So let's see how this works itself out. The first section in Genesis 2 is from verse 4 to verse 17. This is our A statement. It's the creation of man. In this section, God blesses man. This is what we learned in Genesis chapter 1. When God created man, he blessed him and said, Be fruitful and multiply and rule the earth and have dominion over the fish of the sea and the birds of the sky and the beasts of the field. So God blesses man and places him in perfect environment of the Garden of Eden and supplies his every need. That is the subject of verses 4 through 17. Then in the next section, verses 18 to 25, we have the creation of the woman. And God creates the woman to assist the man in his God-given responsibilities as the uh, ruler under God, the ruler, the vicegerent over the planet. Then we have C, the third section, introduces the serpent. The serpent tempts the woman. Remember, this is narrative. This is almost like... um, uh, the, the hero. So you focus on who your characters are. You have man, then woman, and then the introduction of the serpent. And the serpent tempts the woman in three, one through five. And then we have the center. 
in chapter 3, verses 6 to 13, the center of this whole narrative is that the man and the woman sin. After the man and the woman sin, then there is punishment of the serpent. After the the man and the woman sin, God uncovers that sin in verses 6 to 13, and then we have C prime, and we start working our way out. It's like an inverted V or a V on the side here. A, B, C, and then D, the center man and the woman sin, and God uncovers it. There's punishment of the serpent, and God announces perpetual warfare between the serpent's seed and the woman's seed in chapter 3, verses 14 and 15. And then B prime, notice B prime is parallel to B. B was the creation of the woman. B prime is the punishment of the woman. And the woman will be at enmity with the man. She, she was to be his helpmate, his assistant. Now that aspect of her function is cursed. And there is a blight on that because of sin. And then we have A prime, which mirrors A. A was the creation of man, and A prime is the punishment of the man. Man and the environment are spoiled and at enmity with one another. And that's verses 17 through 24. So everything in chapter 2, actually up to chapter 3, verse 5, leads to this main center topic, and that is the sin of the man and the woman and God's uncovering of that. So we see that Genesis 2 and Genesis 3 fit together in a stylistic whole. See, there's a lot of challenge from people who say, well, Genesis was really written by various different authors. We studied this when we looked at our lesson on Mosaic authorship, and it was just put together by later editors. But it is things like this that show that there is an internal unity to Genesis, and it was all written by not only a single author, but it is a brilliant organization of the material under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit to bring our attention to the key points of the narrative. Then we come to chapter 4. And in chapter 4, the focus is on Cain's murder of Abel. We start off with Cain's blessed beginning. Notice the motif. I'm trying to use the same words of blessing and cursing. We have Cain's blessed uh, beginning, the birth of Cain and Abel in chapter 4, verses 1 and 2. Their birth is viewed as a blessing by God, indicated by Eve's statement, I have gotten a man-child with the help of the Lord. This is a blessing. Now, what we learn is that as we go on and we learn about Cain, we learn that Cain's uh, job was working the soil. He was a farmer, whereas uh, Abel became one who took care of the flocks. He was a shepherd. So in Cain's beginning, he has the job of working the soil, and he is apparently living at home with his family, surrounded by Adam and Eve and Abel and his other siblings. So that's Cain's beginning. Then in B, we have Cain's resentment to God for rejecting his offering, verses 3 through 5. So he brings an offering, but it's the wrong kind of offering. God rejects Cain's offering, and he accepts Abel's offering. And then under C, the third division in this section... God's gracious response, God in grace, warns Cain of judgment. And this is covered in verses 6 through uh, 8. 
God graciously warns Cain. So we start to see this emphasis on God's grace before judgment. He warns Cain of judgment if he continues to let sin reign. Then we come to the center. Cain's sin, he murders his brother Abel, and then God uncovers that sin. Notice it's the same theme that we had in in chapter 3 in the first section. The same center. So they're tied together that both... Both the narrative of chapters 2 and 3 and the narrative of Cain and Abel hang on this center point of sin and God's uncovering of the sin. But rather than having a chiastic structure in chapter 4, we go back and we have a parallelism. He goes from, instead of A, B, C, D, C, B, A, we go from A, B, C, D, and then A prime. Cain's cursed ending. So we have Cain being cursed in verses 11 and 12. He is cursed from the ground. Back in earlier, we saw that he was a tiller of the ground. He is cursed from the ground, and he is cursed from his relatives. So now he there is the theme of cursing. And B prime, verses 13 through 14, Cain resents God's justice cries out and whines to God that his punishment is too great to bear. And in C prime, God has a gracious response and God provides for uh, Cain's protection. And this is in verse uh, 15 and 16. And then we have an epilogue to the section, verses 16 down to verse 24, which gives us the genealogy of what of, of Cain's descendants. So that shows us the basic structure of these two sections, uh, all part of the one Toledot section. What happened to this perfect creation that God had? Well, let's back up a minute on our slide to the first part. The creation of man in verses 4 through 17. The creation of man in verses 4 through 17. And in this section, we're going to be told how the first man is formed from the chemicals of the soil, how he lives in the Garden of Eden, how God creates the woman to be his helper. We're told of the sin that they both commit, but primarily it is Adam's responsibility as the head of the race, and then the punishment that God is going to bring on both of them. And the primary purpose of these chapters is to explain how it is that this perfect world has now become a world of pain, trouble, calamity, and cursing. Now in these first two two chapters, chapters 2 and chapters 3, there are several key doctrines that are introduced. We have the doctrine of human responsibility and volition. It is not so much the emphasis on free will as it is the emphasis on responsibility and accountability that if you disobey God and choose wrongly, there will be consequences. We see that man is placed under the authority of God and is answerable to God. And this, of course, gives us another leads to another doctrine that's related to that, and that is the doctrine of labor. Now, when we get there, we'll have some interesting study on the doctrine of labor and work and the Christian philosophy of work, because labor to us is a term that implies drudgery. But man is given responsibility in perfect environment, 
And that responsibility was his labor. That was his job. That was the task that God gave him. It is not laborious. It is not toilsome. It is not drudgery. That comes only as a result of the curse. So what we'll see is everything that God tells Adam and Isha that they are to do, all of their responsibilities in the garden are the areas that are cursed in the, in the curse oracle given at the end of cha- or the second half of chapter 3. So we'll look at the doctrine of labor. We'll look at the sufficiency of God's love. See, what we have in chapter 2 is an expression of God's love. He provides everything for man and the woman. Everything they could possibly uh, need. Not everything that they could possibly want, but he gives them everything that they would need, puts them in perfect environment, and that's not a function of grace. Why isn't that a function of grace? Grace is undeserved favor. Well, undeserved favor implies that the recipient of grace doesn't deserve it because there's something wrong. But but Adam and Isha, created in the image and likeness of God, have perfect righteousness. So they are God is not dealing with them in grace because they deserve this blessing. They possess perfect righteousness. It's no longer grace. It is un it is deserved. And so it is an expression of God's love. The perfect righteousness of God is free to love the perfect righteousness that is in Adam and Isha. So we see the sufficiency of God's love. God's love always provides everything that we need. And afterward we see, after the fall, we see the sufficiency of God's grace. Furthermore, we see the introduction of the universal law of reward and punishment. Whatsoever a man sows, that will will he also reap, otherwise referred to as the law of volitional responsibility. But here its emphasis is on reward and punishment, that when we disobey God, there are consequences to negative volition. We also see the introduction of marriage, and that will fit under the overall category of the divine institutions. We see the doctrine of divine institution. The first is is human responsibility, and the authority in human responsibility is always God. Second divine institution is marriage, and the authority established in marriage is the husband, the man. The third divine institution is family. It is foreshadowed by the command to be fruitful and multiply, but family itself doesn't begin until chapter 4, verse 1. Incidentally, what do we see happen as a result of sin? As a result of sin, volition is now cursed. Responsibility becomes labor. The first divine institution is cursed. The second divine institution of marriage is cursed. And there is going to be uh, antagonism and an authority struggle between men and women apart from the grace of God and sanctification. And then we see in chapter 4 the destruction of the, or the curse coming on the family. The curse on the family because one brother kills, murders his brother, other brother, and as a result he is cursed and separated from his family. And so we see that, that sin affects all of the divine institutions. Furthermore, the third, or the last doctrine I'll mention is a major doctrine, is the origin of evil and being able to answer the question, how can a good God allow evil to exist? And this is what we see in these chapters is that if God doesn't give freedom to man and freedom to succeed includes freedom to fail. If God doesn't give freedom to man to truly fail and to disobey him, which would introduce evil into the system, then they don't have freedom. 
And if man doesn't have freedom, then he can't love God. And love is something that cannot be coerced. Love is something that cannot be forced. Love is something that must be given freely from the individual. And for God's creation to freely love him, they must have free will and make that decision on their own. And so in order to give man the freedom to love him, he also gives man the freedom to fail, and that brings with it the principle of evil. And that one decision to eat a piece of fruit, it wasn't a sin in the sense that we normally think of sin in terms of in terms of adultery or in terms of murder or thievery or lying or slander or gossip, but it was a the simple act of disobeying God is what brought all of this calamity into the human race. See, we want to think that somehow sin is just isolated to cause and effect. One specific action brings a specific consequence. And what we learn from Genesis is that that's not how sin works. Sin is of such a nature that the introduction of it dominoes throughout every area of life and every area of creation, and it destroys and corrupts everything. Not just the human race, not just the person who ate, but it affects everything in God's creation. So the issue becomes clear that it's either complete obedience to God, anything less than complete obedience to God carries with it uh, tremendous consequences. So let's look at this first section, chapter uh, 2, verses 4 through 17, the creation of man, God blesses man and places him in perfect environment and supplies his every need. We'll just look at the first couple of verses. Skip ahead here, Genesis 2.4 reads, This is the account of the heavens and the earth when they were created in the day that the Lord God made the earth and heaven. Notice this verse itself is set up on a chiasm. The first statement, A statement, is this is the account of the heavens and the earth. B prime is when they were created. Uh, I mean, B is when they were created. B prime is in the day, which is a Hebraism idiom for the phrase when or at the time when the Lord God made heaven and earth. So this is the account of the heavens and the earth is parallel to made heaven and earth at the end of the verse. And in the middle you have the statement, the earth when they were created and when... Uh, the Lord created. So that gives us our parallelism, and notice it begins the account of the heavens and the earth, and then at the end that's reversed. So the center part of this is that the earth is what the what took place when God created, or when he had finished creating the earth. Now we're told in verse 5, and this brings in several problems and several questions that we have to address. We will address them in more detail next time, but I will begin to address them some now simply because it is so so obvious that there seems to be on the surface some discrepancies between this verse and the first uh, chapter. It reads, Now no shrub of the field was yet in the earth, and no plant of the field had yet sprouted. For the Lord God had not sent rain upon the earth, and there was no man to cultivate the ground. So anybody see a problem with this? Well, if you look carefully at the first chapter, it says that on the third day, on the third day, 
God created the vegetation. Look back at verse 11. God said, let the earth sprout vegetation, plants yielding seed, and fruit trees bearing fruit after their kind with seed in them on the earth. And it was so. And the earth brought forth vegetation, plants yielding seed after their kind, trees bearing fruit with the seed in them after their kind. God saw that it was good. Well, that's a picture of all the vegetation sprouting on the earth. And now in verse 5 of chapter 2, it looks like we've got a barren earth, that there's no shrub of the field in the earth and no plant of the field had yet sprouted. And then we're told, for the Lord God had not sent rain upon the earth, and there was no man to cultivate the ground. Well, what's going on here? Obviously, there's no contradiction, so maybe we have to understand what the author is getting at. Well, part of the answer lies in understanding the Hebrew here. The Hebrew word for shrub is the word siak, siak, and it looks like this in the Hebrew, S-H-I-A-C-H, siak, and this is a category of vegetation. Well, we have back in Genesis 1, verse 11, in Genesis 1, verse 11, we read, Let the earth sprout vegetation. And that was the Hebrew word, um, Dese. D-E-S-E. And that's a general broad category for vegetation. Plants yielding seed is a different word. This is the word, Esev. E-S-E-V. Esiv. Now, Esiv is a broad category, probably for any kind of shrub or plant. And then fruit trees bearing fruit throughout the earth. Now, in verse 5, what we have is Shiak. We don't have Esiv or Desa. We have Shiak of the field. This is a word, it's not used there, but it is a word that indicates a subcategory and it relates to what we find at the end of this section and that is God's pronouncement on the curse on on man that thorns and thistles it shall grow for you and you shall eat of the plants of the field. So what happens what the author is saying is now at the beginning of chapter 2 he's saying now remember conditions were different this was before there was a curse on the plants no thorns and thistles and it was before the plants of the field had sprouted now the plant of the field relates to grain to barley to wheat to corn now these things won't grow wild they have to be harvested by man remember that was the curse was that man would Kill the soil. And so there's an ominous note here because of the vocabulary in verse, in verse 5 that the plants of the field, the, when it talks about the, that man had not cultivated the ground yet, cultivation of the ground is part of the curse on the ground at the end of the section. And also saying the Lord God had not sent rain upon the earth yet. And rain doesn't come until when? Rain comes with the Noahic flood. It's a sign of judgment. There's no rain until the Noahic flood. You have a completely different hydrosphere uh, and completely different hydraulics working on the planet prior to the flood. So these two two terms foreshadow the curse that occurs at the end of this particular 
section. So it's a brilliant piece of literary structure to foreshadow at the very beginning where you are going. Remember, they, this was a time when there was a lot of oral narrative and people loved a good story and crafting a story so that it hints in, and uh, of coming events. So we read in verse 5 that no shrub of the field was yet in the earth. That would relate to the uh, thorns and the thistles. That hadn't happened yet. And no plant of the field had yet sprouted because man's not tilling the ground yet. For the, Remember, the for, that's the word key in Hebrew giving a reason. For the Lord God had not sent rain upon the earth yet. And there was no man to cultivate it. So there's no tilling of the soil yet, but, which is a result of the curse. So chap, verses 4 and 5 indicate that this is picking up at the end of verse I mean, at the end of chapter 1, or the end of, of 2-3, the creation week. This is a narrative style known as purling. It's very typical in the ancient world. And what they did was they would tell, give a summary of a situation, and then come back in to a particular point in that story and give you a more detailed analysis of that. It was, it was very uh, common in ancient Near Eastern literature to follow that, that, uh, that technique. Now there have been many people who have tried to point out differences between Genesis 1 and Genesis 2 and to try to establish the fact that there are two different narratives here. You'll read this, you'll hear this, you watch something on Discovery Channel, you watch something on A&E, you watch any of these Bible type uh, educational television shows and if they are dealing with creation at all they will you'll all because they always use liberals they never use anybody who takes the bible literally and they always use somebody who doesn't believe the bible is anything other than another piece of literature and they'll always come up with the fact that there were two different creation accounts and this has been disproven time and time again but see one of the uh characteristics of liberal arrogance is that it doesn't act as if there's a conservative position in existence because if you're conservative by definition you can't think and so they just never they never ever interact with conservative literature they just ignore it so what are some of these differences well the first chapter they would say tells the entire story of creation from day one through day seven a seven day week and they would say the second chapter covers everything. They try to make it say the second chapter says that everything happens in one day. Notice verse 4 again states, This is the account of the heavens and the earth when they were created in the day that the Lord God made the heaven and the earth. But that is not a use of the word day, yom, individually. I stated when we studied the word day in Genesis 1 that when it's used with a an ordinal number or with a definite article, it always means a 24-hour day. But when it's used in a certain co- context and certain phrases, for example, with a preposition like this one with the preposition ba, meaning in, it has it's an idiom for when. In the day when the Lord God made heaven and earth or simply when the Lord God made the heavens and the earth. So it is a mistake to take the day here in the same way as the term day in the first chapter. Another difference is that 
as that liberals would say that in chapter 1 the earth began with water, but here it begins with dry land. It's reversed. But chapter 2, 4, and following is not presenting an original account of the creation of everything like the first chapter is. Note there's no mention of the sun, moon, or stars. There's no mention of the creation of cattle. There's no uh, mention of the creation of most of the uh, plants or of the wild beasts or birds. Further, there's nothing here that contradicts the idea that water preceded the land. It simply states that that now there was no shrub of the field yet on the earth, that the land is now in existence. So it's picking up at at the... Um, as we said at the end of the previous section and saying now remember this is before the curse came on the earth before there was rain before there was the tilling of the soil and before there were thorns and thistles well another difference that is often brought out is that in chapter 1 the two sexes are created simultaneously it appears in verses uh, 26 to 28 but here they are created separately. First the man is created and then the woman is taken from the side of the man. But the first chapter merely summarizes the account and says, says uh, yesterday such and such happened without breaking down all of the details. And chapter 2 then comes along and breaks down all of the events of that sixth day. Another difference is that they say that our liberals claim that living creatures were created uh, before the man, but here they're created after the man, and that's not true. They are simply brought to the man for naming in chapter 2. The main difference, though, is the new name for God. God is called Elohim in the first chapter, and here he is called Yahweh Elohim. And it's the introduction of the term Yahweh that is so important. Because if you're a Jew sitting out there on the plains of Moab, when you see that sacred tetragrammaton, the sacred four letters, Y-H-W-H, from which we got the sort of the bastardization of Jehovah, that's not a real Hebrew word, Yahweh always speaks of God who is in covenant relationship with Israel. He has entered into a contract with Israel, and that means that there are curses for disobedience and blessing for obedience. So it always emphasizes the moral aspect of God and the moral requirements that God sets forth. And if you're sitting out there on the plains of Moab as a Jew, you are reminded in chapter 2 that God gave Adam and Ishah one commandment, but he has given you ten commandments because there's a radical difference in the environment now. So Yahweh is always going to bring to their mind the idea of a covenant God who has uh, set down certain stipulations and requirements on man and that obedience brings blessing and disobedience brings brings cursing. Now the first section, verses 4 down through 7, give us this original environment and tells us a little bit about the hydrosphere of the early earth. In verse 6 we're told, but a mist, remember there's no rain at that time, a mist used to rise from the earth and water the whole surface of the ground, and so there's no rain at this time. There's The cycle of water today is above ground. The cycle of water then was below ground. 
The Lord God, we're told in verse 8, planted a garden toward the east in Eden. And there he placed the man whom he had formed. So we're going to have to cover the doctrine of the creation of man and the origin of the soul when we come to verse 8 next time. And then in verse uh, verse 9, we see the perfect environment. Or excuse me, I skipped verse 7. Verse 7 covers the doctrine of the origin of man. The Lord God formed man of the dust from the ground and breathed into his nostrils the breath of life, and man became a living being. Then in verse 8 and 9, we see the perfect environment of the garden. It is a garden where God has special trees that now grow, including two, the tree of life and the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. And these, the genitive construction here should be understood as the tree which produces life and the tree which produces a knowledge of good and evil. So God gives them Trees here, these are different from the other trees. These are trees unique to the garden. Please, they're defined as being pleasing to the sight and good for food. Then in verse 10, we have a picture of the geography of the garden. There are four rivers mentioned. The first river is the river Pishon. It's said to flow around the land of Havilah. Now, we don't know what this land was. Remember, there's a massive worldwide flood that covers the earth for a year in Genesis 6 through 9. The geography of the planet is radically transformed. It was probably at that time that the continents began to split apart and to drift apart. There were no mountains as we know them today. Those were a result of the upheaval caused by the massive geological pressures caught at the time of the flood. So you don't have huge mountains such as the Himalayans or the Rockies or the Appalachians. These, the earth is probably relatively flat. The existence of high mountains would cause uh, air to drop rapidly. You would have rapid cooling of air, and that pressure of air dropping would cause movement of air and wind. That would cause evaporation. That's all part of the modern uh, cycle of water, but it was not part of this early cycle of water. So there were no uh, mountains at that time. The geography, topography of the earth was radically different. So when you hear people and hear these news announcers, as we've seen recently in the war in Iraq, look at this area and say, this was the area where the Garden of Eden once existed. Well, that's just garbage. The Garden of, Nobody knows where the Garden of Eden existed because it was completely wiped out and eradicated. Well, what about the similarity in the names of the rivers? See, later on we'll see the mention of the Tigris and Euphrates. Well, that's because when the, the folks got off the ark, they named, they saw a river and they named it with the name of a river they were familiar with. It's just like when the folks got off the Mayflower and they landed over here in Massachusetts, they started naming cities and towns around here with the, the same names of towns and villages that they had come from in England. Just that folks around here don't pronounce them the same way. You know, you got the Thames River instead of the Thames River. We just don't know how to pronounce things correctly. You got New London instead of London. You've got Boston, Massachusetts, and a Boston, England. So there are many. That's that just what they did. So they got off the ark and they named the the rivers and and countries with the names that of familiar places that had existed before the flood, but they weren't the same. So the Pishon River uh, goes around the 
area of Havilah. And this name is picked up later on and given to a son of Cush in Genesis 10.7 and later a son of Yoktan in Genesis 10.29. This land of Havilah was known for its gold, bedelium, and onyx. And these are, um, uh, you have precious metals and you have a precious gum there. And this is something that had value. So it introduces the concept of intrinsic value, which is important to understanding economics. Then you have the second river, the Gihon, which went around the land of Cush. Cush is later on in the scripture after the flood is related to Ethiopia, but that's not what it meant in this context. Then the third river is the Hittichel, the Tigris, which is known also known as the Tigris, and that flowed around Assyria. And then the fourth is the river Euphrates. Now what was interesting is to look at verse 10. Now a river flowed out of Eden to water the garden, and from there it divided and became four rivers. So you have a situation completely different from what we have today. Today we'll have a river. Let's look at, here's the Mississippi, in the Mississippi Delta down in New Orleans, down in South Louisiana. But the Mississippi is made up of the Ohio and the Ohio has several other rivers that flow into it, and the Missouri, and I think one other piece, uh, one other uh, route of the Mississippi goes up into Minnesota. So you have three or four rivers all coming together to make the mighty Mississippi, and it's all flowing downhill and all flowing down into the Gulf. But the situation you have in Genesis 2, now a river flow, a river, singular, flowed out of Eden. So here's Eden, and it's probably a little bit of a high ground. Here's Eden, and you have one river flowing out of Eden that branches into four separate rivers. In other words, what we have today is where rivers converge, but in the primordial world, they diverged. That doesn't happen anywhere on the planet today. I think that if you and I got in some sort of a time capsule and went back to this time, we would look around the planet and we would think we were on another planet somewhere else in outer space. We would not recognize planet Earth for what it was in this pristine condition. It would The, the, the laws of physics, the laws uh, were quite different and functioned in a different way. So we have in verses 10 through 14 the geography of the of Eden. And then, starting in verse 15 to 18, the conditions of responsibility placed upon the man. In verse 15, the Lord God took the man, put him into the Garden of Eden to cultivate it and to keep it, literally to uh, guard it and to watch over it. It is not the... He is not cultivating at this time. This is a terrible translation... Uh, Adam was not a farmer before the fall. Verse 16, The Lord God commanded the man, saying, From any tree of the garden you may eat freely, but from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil you shall not eat, for in the day that you eat from it you shall surely die. So this will introduce the doctrine of personal responsibility, uh, volition, and the doctrine of death. Then we come to verse 18 through 25 where we see the creation of the woman. God creates the woman as the helper of the man. God helps the man realize his 
uh, his aloneness in verse 18. This is God's grace. He tell, he doesn't just tell the man, you're alone, you need a wife. He says, it's not good for the man to be alone. And the principle there is that man is created to be a social being. He's created for community. No man is an island. And, he, and the same is true for the spiritual life, for the Christian life. We are to function in the community of a local church. Anything less than that is viewed as abnormal by the Scripture. It is not good for the man to be alone. I will make a helper, that is an aidser, suitable for him. And out of the ground, the Lord God formed every beast of the field. These are beasts of the field now, not every beast. And every bird of the sky brought them to the man. This is a summary statement that God had done this. And now he brings them to the man to see what he would call them. So he gives man the responsibility to identify them. And Adam is sitting there. Notice they all come by two by two. There's a male and a female everything. For every male there is a counterpart. And what God shows him is his need for a a counterpart, his need for a companion. And once he recognizes that need, then God causes a deep sleep to fall upon him and creates the woman from his side. This is just the reverse of evolution, which says the woman or the female occurred first and then the male. And then Adam uh, makes an announcement that this is now bone of my bones and flesh of my flesh. We see the unity that they have, complete harmony and rapport. She shall be called Isha. So he names her Isha at the beginning. It's not Eve until after the fall. She shall be called a woman. That's in in the Hebrew. Ish is the word for man, and Isha is the word for woman. She shall be called Isha because she was taken out of man. And then in verse 24, we have a comment by Moses. Moses says, "For this cause, a man shall leave his father and his mother, and shall cleave to his wife." See, when Adam is makes this statement in verse 23, he doesn't know what a mother-in-law or father-in-law are. So Adam is not speaking in verse 24. This is Moses writing under inspiration of the scripture, making application to the Jews that it is for this reason that a man shall leave his father and mother and shall cleave to his wife and they shall become one flesh. Now chapter 3 then gives us the next section uh, where the serpent tempts the woman and the serpent comes and enters into a dialogue with the woman. He's called the most subtle beast of the field and the craftiest of any beast of the field. And he comes to the woman and he asks her a question. He says, Indeed, has God really said that you shall not eat from any tree of the garden? And what the serpent is questioning is God's love and God's sufficiency. Did God really give you enough? Are you really taking care of, can you really trust God to take care of you? It's an extremely subtle appeal, uh, and the woman says that she, and shows that she hasn't been listening very clearly. She says in verse 2 and 3, from the fruit of the trees of the garden we may eat, but from the fruit of the tree which is in the middle of the garden, God said you shall not eat from it or touch it. So we see the first trend of man is to always add something to what God says. And the serpent responds by directly challenging God's veracity and says, Well, you're not going to die. For God knows that the day you eat from it, you your eyes will be open and you will know good and evil. So the woman then, and notice verse 6, When the woman saw that the tree was good for food and that it was a delight to the eyes and that the tree was desirable to make one wise, she took from its fruit and ate and she gave also to her husband with her and he ate. 
Notice how anticlimactic that is. I mean, this is the big sin that plunges the entire world and the entire human race into sin, and it's just covered in a few short words, almost of understatement, to bring out the seriousness of what happened. It just seems such like such a casual thing for them just to take this fruit and eat it. And that is how sin often appears to us as something casual and insignificant, and yet it has incredible consequences. And so God then comes along to uncover the sin, and there is a dialogue between God and the man. Notice he calls to the man, not to the woman, because the man is the one responsible and the head of the race. In verse 9, he says, where are you? And the man responds, and he says, well, I heard the sound of you in the garden, and I was afraid because I was naked, so I hid myself. So we'll have to look at the consequences of sin under here and how fear and mental attitude sins and um, man's exposure of fallibility before a holy God is all part of his sin. That's why people want to suppress the truth of the scripture. They don't like to be exposed in all of their sin and in all of their inability by a righteous God. And so in the dialogue, God says in verse 11, Who told you that you were naked? And the man said, Well, it was... uh, uh, we ate from the tree, and God says, have you eaten from the tree which I commanded you not to eat? Of course, God knows the answer to these questions, but he is asking the questions to bring out what has happened. And the man then blames the woman, and the woman blames the serpent, and then God announces the curse. The curse is different from the penalty. The penalty was spiritual death. The curse indicates all the consequences of spiritual death. And he first addresses the serpent, that there would be enmity between the serpent seed and the woman seed. And this is our first hint of grace. For in verse 15 we have what is called the Proto-Evangelium, or the first mention of the gospel. Between I, I will put enmity between you and the woman, and between your seed and her seed. And that's a reference to Christ. He shall bruise you on the head. That is, the, the serpent or Satan would have a... Um, fatal head wound but you shall bruise him on the heel the seed of the woman would have a uh, smaller less significant and not a fatal wound so that is the first hint to the gospel then in verse 16 there is an outline of the consequences to the woman remember she was to be fruitful and multiply and now she's going to have pain in childbirth and she, instead of being a servant to her husband she's going to want to uh, dominate him. Your desire, and that word there is to dominate, to control. And he shall rule over you, and that has the idea of a tyrannical rule. So now the war of the sexes begin. Then in verses 17 through 19, he outlines the curse to Adam, that, that his responsibility to take care of the garden is now cursed. The ground is cursed. He's going to uh, eat as a result of toil all the days of his life. Nature is changed. The plants are changed. They're going to now produce thorns and thistles. And eventually they will return to dust and they will die physically. That's all the consequence of sin. After that, the man called his wife Eve. There's this sense of hope now at the end of the passage. Eve is going to be mother of the living. They've been talking about death and cursing, but there is hope. She will be the mother of all the living. And then further hope, God makes garments of skin for them. They had tried to cover up their nakedness with the fig leaves. 
that doesn't work. And so now God is going to provide a more permanent covering. This foreshadows the permanent covering for sin at the cross, which comes through a sacrifice, and their covering comes through the sacrifice of animals. So there's clearly death and bloodshed in verse 21. Verse 22, then the Lord God extends the penalty. He evicts the man and the woman from the garden and sets a guard against it so they cannot come back in. That's all in chapter two, chapters 2 and 3, and then we come to chapter 4. Chapter 4 begins with the birth of Cain to Eve, the firstborn, and then a secondborn, or it seems the secondborn. Genesis chapter 5, uh, verse uh, 5 tells us that there were many other uh, sons and daughters born to, to uh, Adam. Or verse 4, Genesis 5, 4, there were many other sons and daughters, so we don't know that this is the firstborn and the secondborn. It seems that way from the text. And they grow up, and in the course of time, verse 3, they each bring an offering. Cain is a farmer, so he brings that which he has worked hard on and produced. Abel is a shepherd. He doesn't do anything to produce the animals, but it is apparent that God has given specific uh, guidelines about offerings. So that Cain's offering is not what God asked for. It doesn't involve the first uh, firstborn of the flock. We know this from later revelation that this was what God had revealed. Uh, so Abel's sacrifice is accepted. Cain is rejected. Cain becomes jealous, depressed, resentful, and bitter. That tells us that all of these things are a result of man trying to do things by man's effort and whenever we get our own will uh, blocked, whenever we can't get our own way, the result is always going to be in uh, an, an arrogance. The result is going to be anger and bitterness and depression. And so God confronts Cain just as he confronted Adam and the woman in chapter 3. And he is going to expose his sin. He says, why are you angry? Why is your countenance falling? If you do well, will not your countenance be lifted up? And if you do not do well, sin is crouching at the door. That's, that's, uh, and then we find the same word we had in uh, chapter 3. Its desire is for you. That's a desire to control, the same kind of desire that the woman has for the husband. Cain told Abel his brother, it came about when they were in the field, that Cain rose up against Abel his brother and killed him. So that verse 8 is the centerpiece, verses 8 through 10 is the centerpiece of the narrative of chapter 4. And then God confronts uh, Abel and uncovers and discloses the sin in verses 9 and 10. And then he announces the curse in verse 11, that now uh, Cain is cursed from the soil, from the ground, Adamah, he is cursed from the ground, and he is going to be driven out from his relatives. And so in verse 16, Cain went out from the presence of the Lord, settled in the land of Nod, east of Eden. He had relations with his wife. People always want to know who Cain's wife was. It was his sister. There wasn't any other families. That was the only option. And uh, marriage between those who are too close in blood relationship is not prohibited until the Mosaic Law. Why? Because you have a very small population at the beginning, and there is an incredible complexity in the gene pool, but once you get things spread out pretty much, and the gene pool begins to be diluted, then it becomes dangerous and harmful for people who are too closely related to uh, uh, procreate and have children. 
And then we come to the end of that chapter, which gives us the genealogy of what happened to Cain's descendants. And it is a story of, of sin and corruption and murder and uh, arrogance. But it ends on a hopeful note in verse 25. Adam had relations with his wife again. She gave birth to a son named him Seth. For she said, God has appointed me another offspring in place of Abel, for Cain killed him. So the emphasis is on grace, God's continuing provision, and God's continuing supply. And it ends on the note, then men began to call upon the name of Yahweh. And that is a sign of the fact that there were weren't just those who were the rebellious unbelievers in Cain's line, but there were many believers in the line of Seth. So what's the question here? The question that is asked or answered in chapters 2 through 4 is why is there evil? Why is there sin? Why is there suffering? Why is there calamity? It is because of man's volition. Man chose to disobey God. So whenever we choose to disobey God, the implication is there will be divine discipline. There will be cursing from God because sin always carries with it not only specific punishment but also devastating consequences. And so all of the sin, war, famine, and misery in human history is the consequence of man's own decision. He can't blame God. God gave him perfect environment. It was man's decision to mess it all up. But the message of hope is that God in his grace provides a perfect solution so that man can have salvation, and that comes through the finished work of Jesus Christ on the cross and that we can have salvation not as a result of our own works but by simply putting our faith alone in Christ alone and then we can have salvation and there will be restoration at that point that is the other theme of these chapters is that there is a destruction from cursing and there needs to be a restoration God provides the restoration from grace and it's based on who he is and what Christ did on the cross not who and what we are with our heads bowed and our eyes closed Father we thank you for this opportunity to study your word this evening we pray that you would help us to uh, better understand all of these things and see their implications for our own lives and our own thinking we pray this in Christ's name Amen